Welcome to the Metabolic Mind Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Schur. Metabolic Mind is a nonprofit initiative of Bazooki Group, where we're providing information about the intersection of metabolic health and mental health, and metabolic therapies such as nutritional ketosis as therapies for mental illness. Thank you for joining us. Although our podcast is for informational purposes only, and we aren't giving medical advice, we hope you will learn from our content and it will help facilitate discussions with your healthcare providers to see if you could benefit from exploring the connection between metabolic and mental health. Today, we're continuing with our series discussing the use of GLP-1 receptor agonist medications like Wagovi and Ozempic in a psychiatry population, specifically what effect they might have on mood disorders, how they sort of fit into the whole paradigm of treatment. And I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Roger McIntyre, who has been involved in, in the field of psychiatry for, for over about 30 years now, as he said, and has been involved in every area from, from research to clinical practice to advocacy to leadership. And he's, he's a very highly sought after speaker. So it's a pleasure to have him on the show today to talk about his perspective of GLP-1 receptor agonists, how they can be used in psychiatry, how the research is going, and the analogies and comparisons to ketogenic therapy. And the same thing, how could that be used in psychiatric care? Where does it fit into the overall picture? Um, and sort of also his his hope and enthusiasm of, of new treatments um, and new areas of research that are going to directly impact patient care. Now, now, Dr. McIntyre, he's a professor of psychiatry and pharmacology at the University of Toronto and head of the Mood Disorders Psychopharmacology Unit at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada. And he's also the executive director of the Brain and Cognition Discovery Foundation in Toronto and the director and co-chair of the Scientific Advisory Board of the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance. He's authored over 800 papers. So you can see just by that introduction. He's involved in the advocacy side. He's involved in the research side. He's involved in the leadership side. He's truly one of the, the preeminent people in the field of psychiatry right now. So it's a pleasure to, to have him on to discuss this very, very important topic. Now, remember, as always, our channel is for informational purposes only. We're not providing uh, direct healthcare advice or establishing a provider-patient relationship. Um, all, the things we discuss, whether it's medications or changing your lifestyle, can have dramatic and dangerous effects if not done with proper clinical supervision. So please take the information from this interview, learn from it, and bring it back to your clinical team to discuss if it's right for you so any changes you have are, are done under clinical guidance. Um, and also last thing to find more about Dr. McIntyre, he is on Twitter or X, I'm still getting used to calling it X at Roger S. McIntyre, M-C-I-N-T-Y-R-E. Okay. So with that as the introduction, please enjoy this interview with Dr. Roger McIntyre. Well, Dr. McIntyre, thank you so much for joining us today here at Metabolic Mind. So wonderful to be with you. So as we heard in your intro, you have quite the accolades from, from academics and, and research and, and also you know, clinical practice and, and, and leading different organizations. So it seems like you've been involved in many different aspects of psychiatry and probably seen it change over time. And one of the main areas that, that seems to be on the forefront now is the question of these GLP-1 agonist medications and right. what roles do they have in psychiatry. So there's the discussion of how they help in weight management, 
But now there's also the discussion of how they help as a direct sort of uh, uh, psychotherapeutic medication. So, so give us your sort of overall thoughts on how this field is changing here. Well, look, you set that up so nice, Brett, and, and you're absolutely correct. I would say that um, in my time in, in psychiatry, a surreal privilege I've been given to do this, I could tell you that, uh, by patients and families, is that we are really seeing a, a, a pivot towards a new frontier in how we think about what causes mental illness broadly and how we can prevent and treat mental illness. And we all share in common the wish to reduce the burden of mental illness to people. Right. And when I started in the business, Brett, people talked about you know, neurochemical imbalance in your brain, you didn't have serotonin, take some SSRI like Prozac, your depression would get better. Now I'm obviously being overly simplistic, but that's that's sort of the, the it was sort of the mantra for a long time. The last decade or so, what's happened is we've got technology that we didn't have before that's given us the opportunity to look under the hood, in other words, look at the brain in ways we could not look at 20 years ago. When I started my career, this did a lot of this technology didn't exist. And what we have now is a, a line of sight. We have a line of sight that is telling us, you know what? In the brain of people who are living with mental illness, and again, mental illness is a big category, but, uh, but mental illness is broadly, is that there's something not quite right with how the brain cells are utilizing energy. And we know that when the brain cells don't utilize energy in a way that is considered um, normal, that could affect their survival and their function. Then we kind of then did some detective work. And we've discovered that there's a number of different reasons why this is the case. And one of the reasons why this is the case is that there's something maybe a little not quite right with insulin or the GLP-1 system or both. And again, we didn't even have this technology uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Right. But in many ways, as you know, Brett, history repeats itself. And going way, way back, like 100 years ago, even in the 1800s, more than 100 years ago, the uh, writers at the time observed that people who had diabetes were more prone to mental illness and vice versa. There was some type of connection and people tried different ways of manipulating it, but it kind of never really took off. There wasn't really the, the traction, so to speak, but now there is. So in short, the prevailing view in psychiatry broadly is that mental illnesses are a result of an abnormal function of the brain cells. And one of the reasons, not the only reason why these brain cells are not performing normally is because something wrong with energy utilization. And that might be related to inflammation, might be related to other aspects. And that then invited an opportunity. Maybe we can reset that energy homeostasis in the brain cell to provide not just treatment, but maybe even protection against mental illness. Yeah, so interesting just to how you laid that out, you know, how it evolved over time. And, and as new theories pop up, that opens up new areas of research and yeah. potential new therapeutics. So whether it's a medication, whether it's a lifestyle that we'll get to. So so this medication, these medications, the class of medications, yeah. the GLP-1s, yeah. you know, people hear those and they think, you know, we'll go Ozempic, they think weight loss, yeah. they think, you know, works in the gut, um, decreases your appetite. So how does that then translate to mood improvements? Is it the improvement in metabolic health, which then leads to better metabolism in the brain? Is it a direct brain effect? What What's the underlying theory right now? 
underlying theory right now, Brad, is that there's two pathways wherein we think that GLP-1 agonism, in other words, activating the GLP-1 receptors may be beneficial. First is indirectly. By virtue of the fact that someone is losing a lot of excess weight and or the person's diabetes is coming under better control, that in and of itself is good for brain health. Because I coined this phrase a few years ago, the metastasis of obesity and diabetes to the brain. Yeah. And what I was trying to capture with that notion is that when I went to medical school, we heard so much about how bad obesity and diabetes is for your heart, for many organs and so on. No one talked about the brain. And I had noticed early in my career when people had obesity or diabetes, they were more likely to have problems with their cognitive functions, be able to think clearly. They often complained of low energy and motivational deficits. Long story short, we now know that's linked. And so that's one possible pathway because GLP-1 agonism can result in significant weight loss and improve your diabetes. And that would be a nice, easy to understand story. And it is. There's a second way as well. This is the part we didn't know about until fairly recently. GLP-1 is actually produced not only in the bowel, that's what's mimicked by the medication, but it's also in the brain. And what's interesting is that they always say location, location, location. Well, the location tells you a lot. Wherever you see a 7-Eleven, that usually means there's lots of, lots of people living nearby. And when you have, in fact, GLP-1 receptors in regions of the brain, it can often tell you a bit about what its job description is. And GLP-1 receptors and GLP-1 in the brain, where it's locally manufactured, is in areas of the brain critical for us to be able to think clearly and for us to be able to feel emotion, feel ourselves, feel a sense of well-being. And it not only does it directly, but does it through other neurotransmitters like, like dopamine, which is the pleasure hormone. And so we've discovered in our animal work and other folks have shown this, and we've, we've, we've done this also in our, in our human studies, that by giving a GLP-1 agonist, yes, you can lose weight. And by that, that could help the brain. Also, it can directly go into the brain and it can actually affect the brain. And that might be able to reset the circuits in the brain. I always talk about, Brett, CNN, circuits, nodes, and networks. So in the brain, you've got these circuits and these networks and these nodes and all keep it together. It's just like your motherboard on your PC. Yeah. And when we look at the circuitry and the networks in the brain with MRI scanning, something's a little off in many mental illnesses. When you give the GLP-1, it might reset that. So again, these are not mutually exclusive, the direct route, the indirect route, but we'll take whatever we can get. Anything that's going to help the brain, I'm signing up for. So this has been of interest to us and has provided the impetus now for us to say, heck, why don't we just study these medicines as direct therapeutics for mental disorders like Alzheimer's disease or mild cognitive impairment or depression or what have you. But you know, something I, I know Brett, you, you and I talked about before, is that at the end of the day, the way I always want to encourage people to think about not just medication, but also dietary interventions or psychotherapy, exercise, sleep, it's kind of like a game of rugby. And there's a, you know, for those who know the game of rugby, when you run down the field, you kind of hand the ball off to the next person who throws the ball to the next person. You keep running down the field as a team. The first step is where the drug binds to, and then that's the football. You hand it off to the next person. And so the downstream effects in the brain, in the cells of the brain, 
they're probably overlapping. So when you give a GLP-1, it's possible that some of the downstream effects of doing that is not dissimilar from dietary modification. Maybe it overlaps with ketogenic. Maybe it overlaps with sleep normalization. Maybe mindfulness-based therapy. Maybe exercise. In other words, there's many ways that you can take the interstate to go to a city. There's many routes of entry, but you end up in a similar place. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's a very interesting analogy. So, and I definitely want to talk more about lifestyle and the comparisons, but you know, so now with these GLP-1s, there's a lot of excitement about doing research on them, and that makes a lot of sense. And there's some mm -hmm. clinical experience, but if we were to, you know, in broad stroke, say there are, you know, uh, antidepressant medications, there are mood stabilizing medications, there are antipsychotic medications with some overlap there. Where would the GLP-1s fit? Would they fit into any sort of generic category <laughs> like that? Like how, how do you think about them in a psychiatry practice? You know, that's such a great question. And you know something, they say that names matter. Uh, names do matter. Um, I think what we're going to be talking about with these uh, medications is to be determined. Um, for now, they're called GLP-1s. But for me, I'm going to call them brain protective medications. How's okay. that? That's yeah. just making being somewhat extemporaneous. In other words, we really believe that these interventions targeting metabolics in the brain we're focusing on GLP-1 right now, but we could also extend this to insulin and other ways to affect cellular metabolism. We think this cuts across from the nursery to the nursing home. What I mean by that metaphor, conditions of childhood like autism, maybe ADHD, all the way through diseases of adulthood like depression, bipolar, and so on and so on, all the way to the elderly like Alzheimer's disease and so on. So I don't think we're going to be held ransom to one single disorder. I think we're looking at they are broadly effective and therapeutic for the brain, and that will have what we call transdiagnostic, just simply meaning applies a different diagnosis. Um, what's been so interesting to me is that when we talk about mental illness, what we tend to talk about is risk. This person has a risk of mental illness by virtue of having this molecule not quite right or that receptor not quite right. This person has risk for this, risk for that. We don't see enough about resiliency. Hmm. In other words, what's protecting the brain from all those daily insults and so on. And what's cool about the GLP-1 system is the GLP-1 system ignites in at the cell a set of molecules that protect the brain and also ignites a set of molecules that reduce the risk. So just like a seesaw, risk and resiliency, risk and resiliency, um, once risk is starting to take a heavier load, then that's when you get into trouble. Your resiliency should balance it off. And so they're targeting two aspects. They're boosting some of the molecular systems that we implicate, for example, in reducing inflammation. Mm -hmm. But they also, in fact, reduce some of the risk uh, in the brain. That is, they eliminate certain proteins in the brain that are kind of bad customers. One of them is called amyloid, which is implicated, of course, everyone knows, in Alzheimer's disease. But it's implicated in a whole bunch of other problems, and it's a bad customer. And a GLP-1 seems to reduce and get that uh, uh, exported out of the brain. So it does a lot of really interesting things. Academics love really, really like uh, unnecessarily complicated words. One they love is pleiotropic, <laughs> which just means does a bunch of things. Yeah. And so it does a, it does a bunch of things. Yeah, and I really like that talk about resiliency and brain protection. Now. You know, so they're saying there's no free lunch. So these medications come with risks of 
you know, yeah. nausea and gastroparesis and intestinal blockage yeah. and pancreatitis, right? There's a, any drug has a laundry list of side effects. So one question is, well, yeah. what else can we do to achieve similar results? And the way we talk about ketogenic therapy is often very similar. It can help with the weight loss from antipsychotic yeah. medications. It can help with metabolic yeah. health. It can reduce neuroinflammation. Um, and it can be sort of a brain protection, whether it's from mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's disease or potential treatment for psychiatric symptoms. So how do you see that analogy or or how does ketogenic therapy fit in in light of the enthusiasm around GLP-1s? You know, it's such a great question. I think that in fact, when it comes to ketogenic diet, I think that the evidence is really getting us more and more interested in this modality in the sense that we know that when the diet is shifted, towards a uh, consumption of nutrient that creates a ketogenic diet state, that there are, in fact, mechanisms that are ignited, like anti-inflammatory, antioxidant. We see a boosting of the performance of different, uh, uh, what we call organelles or uh, subcomponents of cells. We also see something I've been interested in a long time, a boosting of insulin sensitivity. Uh, the very first patient in the world, Brett, that received insulin for the treatment of diabetes was a young boy uh, in 1922 at my hospital in Toronto at the Banting and Best Institute. So maybe it's something about Toronto, about insulin. Maybe it's in the air here. We, <laughs> we all take an interest in it, at least I did early in my career. But insulin's so interesting because insulin in the brain is not so much there to help with your sugar or glucose control. It's there as a protein to support the brain cells, to help them grow, to help them protect against injury. And also they're there to help us form new synapses or connections. And ketogenic diet seems to also boost the insulin signaling system. So we talked about pleiotropic, which means does a bunch of things. Uh, ketogenic diet is certainly touching on some of these sweet zones. And what would be really interesting, Brett, here'd be an interesting and cool study, something we've been marinating. And that is is to compare, to look at what's the effect in the brain of GLP-1 and ketogenic diet to see if that in the brain, some of the, the, the effect is overlapping. That's something we've been marinating internally and something we're going to explore. Yeah, that does sound exciting. Now, now as we've you know talked about in the beginning of your career, you have you know, the clinical, the research, and the advocacy. You're really in, in yeah. all of those areas. And when it comes to yeah. something, whether it's GLP-1, whether it's ketogenic therapy, there's a bit of a disconnect, right? The research is sort of trying to catch up with some of the enthusiasm, some of the yeah. um, clinical experience and anecdotal reports. But then from the advocacy standpoint, we have patients looking for treatments now, struggling to find treatments now. So how do you see you know, the recommendations for using ketogenic therapy to treat um, serious mental illness or the clinical mm -hmm. use of GLP-1s? How do you sort of connect the dots from the, from the research to the clinical practice to the advocacy? You know, you touched on the elephant in the room, Brett, and that is, is that um, quite tragically that the um, unmet need, the problem that we have with mental health treatment, uh, not just in rich countries like U.S. and Canada, but around the world, is that people don't have sufficient access to the treatments in a timely way overseen by a coordinated high-quality healthcare system. And that's been a major, major problem. I also think a second point is, is that just recently, uh, the Nobel Prize in medicine, just a week or two ago, 
was awarded to two outstanding researchers, to say the least, who discovered the mRNA vaccine. And um, vaccines, according to the World Health Organization, have done more to help humanity's health than any other invention. Where I'm going with this line of thought is prevention, mm -hmm. prevention and more prevention. In other words, it's always easier to prevent than it is to treat. And I see dietary manipulation broadly as an opportunity to prevent mental illness. We know from many lines of research that uh, dietary uh, nutrient composition can protect you or put you at risk of mental illness. It's not the only thing. There's ever one simple explanation. I wish there was. But it's one suspect in the suspect line at the police station committing this crime. In other words, we know that Mediterranean diets, which are very high in oils, or uh, high fish diets, again, higher in oils with low carb intake, protect uh, the population in these observational studies against depression, bipolar disorder, as an example. So there's opportunities for prevention. Um, the major problem, as you know, in North America, we got too many uh, uh, food deserts and too many food swamps. Food deserts meaning there's no uh, local store that can offer good food, and we've got swamps of low-quality, high-glycemic uh, 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 foods that are fast food and you know in, in their orientation. So that aside for a moment, with respect to people who enter the healthcare ecosystem, who have access to care, what is, in 2023, what is the state of the union as it relates to using these medicines, using a ketogenic diet, dietary manipulation. Now, I have the utmost of sensitivity to social and economic issues, and I know that to eat healthy is a heck of a lot more expensive than eating uh, a pizza, okay? I got that. I understand that. I'm very sensitive to that. But that aside for a moment, what I would say is, is that GLP-1 medicines have specific FDA indications, uh, and it depends on which one. There's about a half a dozen of these drugs uh, for diabetes and or obesity. So I think that the, the use of those medications should stay within their indication. Some might be saying, well, hang on, you've just been spending the last time talking about how they could help the brain for maybe depression and bipolar, et cetera. I say, yes, but, but let's just hold on. We got to make sure this is true. These are hypotheses. This is still a work in progress. I wouldn't be treating depression or schizophrenia or autism or Alzheimer's with the GLP-1. I would say that's a research hypothesis that we are currently pursuing. Um, but that's something I thought people would be interested in. With respect to ketogenic diet, I also think that that's where we're at. We've got um, plenty of evidence now to show this is really, really starting to help some people uh, in, in, in not just in depression and bipolar, but some other many other conditions as well. That's why I don't think it's held ransom to one diagnosis. Right. But I would say that for now, for now, what I would say is we need to have, and they're starting right now, Brett, you know it well, uh, some larger randomized controlled trials that are what's called adequate. Adequate just simply means really rigorous and controlling for all the confounding variables and all that stuff. But that can really, in fact, answer the question, is this the way to go? Mm -hmm. And I am a very open-minded person and I'm a curious person. Uh, the science has to always guide this. And the science has taken us in a direction that we have a believable and viable hypothesis that maybe it could be used for certain conditions. Some might be saying, well, isn't it already used for pediatric epilepsy? Uh, yeah, it already is. You're right. Um, and that's already a proof of concept that it can help a, you know, a suffering population. The question now is, is can we extrapolate that 
into other patient populations. And I've been a research, um, you know, scientist for a long, long time. And what I've learned is, is that um, I, I'll say, I'll say it this way, quite humbly, Brett, that a lot of my hypotheses haven't quite turned out, uh, but I keep going. Uh, and sometimes they turn out. You have to be really, really humble in this business. And and so yeah. let's see where it lands. Let's make sure it's safe and let's make sure it works. And I think so it's an exciting time. Yeah. And, and do you think the burden of proof, though, is different from a, a medication that needs FDA approval and is expensive and, and whatnot? And, and you need a physician to give it to you versus just changing how you eat, right? You can simplify it that much. Although I would argue that in this, in this realm, ketogenic intervention is a medical intervention as well. But do you think the, the research burden of proof is different or would you hold them on the same, the same level? You know, the way I would approach it is, is I would approach it with nothing but respect, nothing but respect for the seriousness, the hazards, uh, the agony, and the immeasurable suffering that mental illness causes. Uh, and, you know, as I think about it in my experience, and I've witnessed firsthand, I've been providing care for people with depression and bipolar for a long, long time. And um, they've given me a privilege. And, and, and I think that people who are suffering in that kind of agony, I think that they deserve to know that the treatments that are recommended are safe and are supported by an evidence base that's compelling. Now, the question then is, well, what's compelling? Well, the FDA defines compelling. You have to have a couple of studies. You can't just have one, one fluke or one mulligan. You have to have a couple of replicated studies. Um, the, the scientific community, generally speaking, has guardrails on what's considered a rigorous way to do this. And, um, and it can be done. And it is being done. And I think that before we say to somebody, because whenever I say to somebody, I think you should try treatment X or treatment Y. A person's trusting my professional judgment. They're trusting my ethics. They're trusting my advocacy. And, you know, when I go to a car de uh, mechanic, I don't know anything about car mechanics. I'm trusting what the person going to tell me. And when it's your health, what can be more important? And so I think we have to respect the seriousness of the mental illness that people will suffer from and say, okay, I'm going to respect that by saying we're only going to recommend the highest quality of evidence. Now, Again, I'm a researcher. I appreciate firsthand. It's a little tricky to do some of these studies. You can't just taking a pill or placebo is sort of pretty easy. Um, changing diets not quite as easy. Mm -hmm. uh, I've done a lot of. We've done some of this work, etc. So there are obviously some challenges with the method how you do this, but there are ways to do it that again that be considered compelling. One of the challenges, as you know, Brad, is that you know. In order for research to flourish or to be adequately interrogated, it has to be supported financially. Research doesn't just happen. There's a, there's a cost to doing research. Right. And, and, and part of this is the street light effect. Where's the street light shining? That tends to get the money, so to speak. Um, but I think now, I think we've been, we've been flirting with the um, opportunity that might be provided by ketogenic diet for, for decades. But I think what we're now seeing for the first time is really uh, you know, top-notch researchers leading people around the world in research who are taking this question on and testing it. So I think it's going to be very, very enlightening over the next three to five years. I, I got to put my bias. I mean, everyone has biases. Um, some that you're aware of. Most of our biases we're not even aware of. Um, but my bias is that I strongly believe what you eat does affect your brain. And whether it does it directly or does it through through other mechanisms like the gut biome, the gut biota, I, we can 
discuss that for hours, but I'm a big believer in the energetic model of mental illness. And so anything that's affecting energy homeostasis in the brain and body has implications for that organ called the brain. So to me, it's just so intuitive. And, uh, um, and I think this is going to be a very exciting time. Yeah, I like how you talked about the streetlight um, analogy, that the streetlight was shining brightly on serotonin, on neurotransmitters, and that's where yeah. the drug development was. And now we Absolutely. are starting to see that that streetlight move towards brain energy. Now, like me, I'm I'm deep into brain energy, right? That's what I focus on and, and ketosis <laughs> for it. But so you're in the broader field of psychiatry though. So do you see that streetlight starting to move in the broader field of psychiatry as well? I absolutely do. Um, and, and I really do. In fact, and I think part of this is 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 a consequence of our of our technology and the ways that we can look at brain cells in the microscope. And what we are discovering, for example, in the brain is that the brain is, you know, the brain is comprised of two types of brain cells. They're called neurons or, you know, uh, brain cells and also the glia, the white matter, the gray matter, and the white matter, respectively. And when we really uh, sharpen the focus and look into these cells, what we find is, is that the way wherein the, the, the cell is uh, able to produce, able to allocate, able to uh, utilize and dispose of energy is abnormal. And, um, and, and it stands to reason that if we can reset that, we could have a corrective therapeutic. And what's interesting is that when I look across the, the medications that we have in psychiatry, um, some of the medications that we have also affect these systems. So the streetlight, you're right, has shined on serotonin. Uh, it, we've been worshiping at the altar of serotonin for decades, quite frankly. Uh, and no doubt it is a critical neurotransmitter, but it's not the only one that's relevant. And when we look at conventional treatments, not all of them, but some of them, uh, we see effects. We see effects on cellular energetics. So here's an example, lithium. Now, lithium is not a treatment for everybody, but lithium is a treatment for many people who live with bipolar disorder. It's been a game-changing treatment. It reduces suicide and bipolar. In fact, um, the global bipolar community, which I'm very publicly part of, would say that's one of the gold standard treatments still today. Yeah. Now, lithium's mechanism of action in the brain is not fully known, but it is known. It has a very potent effect on resetting cellular energy. And... Um, and then, so that's one example of a therapeutic affecting energy that can really be life-saving for people. Turn it the other way around, people who have diabetes, well, I think everybody knows diabetes, you got too much sugar, your body's not able to use the sugar, and consequently, the cells, because they can't get the sugar, the cells actually begin to, frankly, starve. They can't get the sugar. And there's something wrong with the energy system inside the cell. And just to put a couple of percentages on this, that you know, the, the rate of depression and other mental illnesses increased two to five fold in people with type two diabetes. I always mention that in people living with Alzheimer's disease, 80%, 8-0 have brain insulin resistance. There's something wrong with the insulin system. So the pathway of perturbing or disrupting the energy system is uh, putting the brain at risk. And when we correct the energy system, it seems to protect the brain. So, um, so, and we've known that. So, 
Uh, and I think that's really cool. The other thing I find really interesting is it's not just about the pills. I'm a pharmacologist, and that's for me is more of a pro. Um, uh, I'm also uh, trained as a psychotherapist in the past. I actually was in psychoanalysis for six and a half years. People go, you're a pharmacologist. Why are you in psychoanalysis? I'm like, where did this come from? <laughs> um, you know, but I'm so I think that mindfulness-based therapy, exercise aerobic treatment, I think those are still waiting for someone to hold on to those horns and really research it. I'm a big believer that I think that the exercise component could help cellular energetics. And I do think one final part, just to finish that off, Brett, we don't say enough about is sleep. Um, you know, uh, sleep affects every single mental illness. And sleep is a big problem. We know that. We've got a sleep-deprived society. Um, and sleep affects every single system in your brain. And one of them is cellular energetics. You want to know something that's really cool? Is that one of the treatments we have for sleep, for insomnia, is a group of medications called orexins. Orexins, that sounds like uh, orexigenic. That's right. These are drugs that were developed. Initially, they were discovered to be involved in the appetite system and the energy system. And so we have these medications. They go by the trade names, Balsamra, Cubivic, Davigo. These are drugs prescribed in the U.S. and Canada to help people with their sleep. But these are drugs that help the brain, help cognition. And guess what? They are resetting the energy homeostasis of the brain cell. So we have energy modulating drugs right now to help you sleep. So I think we've got lots of leads. This is why I really think we've got to take this bull by the horns and we've got to really test ketogenic diets. You know, it's a different topic for another day, but you know, there's a lot of hype in psychedelics right now. And I always say that the only thing more, more, more hype than psychedelics is, is the Aris tour from Taylor Swift, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but there's so much hype and look, and, and look, and with hype, uh, hype is good. I'm all for hype, uh, but we also have to be measured. And there's some really exciting leads with some of these psychedelics, whether it be ecstasy or ketamine or psilocybin. And guess what? These drugs do affect energy systems in the brain. So all my, all I'm getting at is, um, where there's smoke, there's fire, and we've had the smoke for a long time around energetics, and I think dietary manipulation, like we talked about ketogenic and other ways, uh, are coherent, viable. Let's get them really forcefully and thoroughly studied. Yeah, wow, what a great, what a great way to tie that in, tie all those different therapeutic options into brain energy and the way the brain uses mm -hmm. energy more efficiently. And, and so you hinted in the beginning that the that psychiatric care is not where we would want it, that there's a, a lot of room for an Im improvement. So now that the spotlight is different, now there are all these other options that you just mentioned. Do you think, I mean, is the future pretty bright for the improvement of psychiatric care to really help people get back to their full functioning lives? A, a, a huge yes, Brett, a huge yes. And I, I remember about five years ago, maybe longer, maybe seven, the pandemic has messed up all my time, uh, sort of yeah. anchor points. But five to seven years ago, I wrote a paper and 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 I mentioned that psychiatry is in a cul-de-sac. Psychiatry is in a kind of a stagnation of innovation. And look, I mean, you know, science, science, what happens in science is we have this incremental evolution going on. Things are getting more and more better and so on. And then every 10, 20, 30, 50 years, we get this leap forward, okay? A leap forward. And that's just how a lot of things in life work, including medicine. 
And psychiatry entered into a remarkable time in the 1950s, which was called the psychopharmacological revolution. Prior to 1950, we didn't have any drugs for any mental illness, period, full stop. People were getting all kinds of things done to them in asylums back in the day. Then what happened in the 50s, we had the introduction of drugs like benzodiazepines, the Valium-type drugs, we have antipsychotics, the lithium, anti-epileptic drugs, antidepressants, as they say, the rest is history. And there's no doubt, there's no doubt that many, many, many lives have been saved by these medi medications. We've seen deinstitutionalization. We've seen many good things happen. That's the good news. The bad news is, is that they're not perfect. And the great majority of people living with all kinds of mental illnesses are not having their needs adequately addressed by status quo. So we have, we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I don't, we're not throwing SSRIs out the door. They've saved people's lives. But out of 100 people who take those medications, at least 70 to 75 are not really getting the goals met. So what we do is we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We say, okay, let's hang on to the baby, but let's actually add to our arsenal other treatments that take on this enemy called mental illness. And it has to be guided by, we can be as passionate as we want. I always say that passion should not be the mediator, it should be the moderator. That's what gets us out of bed in the morning. We have to be measured in our science. And I do think that this is incredible because in my time, I've been in this, well, 30 years now. I can't believe it. I still feel like I'm 18. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, uh, this is like an incredibly interesting time. we got new medications. we got new ways to do TMS. There's new psychotherapies, all kinds of science around nutrition and diet. Sleep science has just taken off. It really is an exciting time. And I think we're going to have a larger percentage of people have treatments that are scalable, they can access it, they can access it, um, that don't give them all kinds of horrible side effects and all that stuff. Everything has side effects, but not you know too many problems. Um, it, it really is a hopeful time. And you want to know what, Brett? I, I've had tens and tens and tens of thousands of people come through my program since I started it. And as I've sat and I've met tens of thousands of people suffering from depression, what I would say is, is that we, 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 we've had a real um, lack of hope, and what we need is more hope. And I think hope comes in the form of having viable treatments. And so this is a wonderful, hopeful time for the field. In the next five to 10 years, you're going to see paradigm shifts in how psychiatric illness is going to be treated, without question. Uh, I really, I really admire your passion and appreciate your passion and your enthusiasm oh, you. and your your approach from a research standpoint and for all you do from an advocacy, stamp, advocacy standpoint and all you do to to help the field of psychiatry move forward with a message of hope, like you just said. So thank, thank you, you so for much. that. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for joining us today. And I look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Thanks for having me, Brett. I really, really appreciate it. Warm regards. Thanks for listening to the Metabolic Mind podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please leave a rating and comment as we'd love to hear from you. And please click the subscribe button so you won't miss any of our future episodes. And you can see full video episodes on our YouTube page at Metabolic Mind. Lastly, if you know someone who may benefit from this information, please share it as our goal is to spread this information to help as many people as possible. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you here next time at the Metabolic Mind podcast.